I'm Roberto. And I'm Brendan, and together we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. Roberto, who are we ranking this week? This week, ruler number 12, Sviatoslav II. What, another one? Are you kidding me? We got, an- we got another Sviatoslav. It's the oh, first God. number two. <sighs> no, I think we've had a lot of number twos before this. We've definitely had really shit rulers. I think they've just been bad rulers. <laughs> what, no reaction on the number two pun? Oh, I just got it. <laughs> I had to explain it to you. I, I still laugh. It's it's okay. Yeah. Oh, we talk, we laugh. It's a fine I don't know time. why I did that accent. I don't either. Anyway. But before we jump into today's episode, uh, we want to give thanks to quite a few new patrons who have joined our ranks. We have Hal the Legionnaire, who will now be dubbed Prince Hal of Polotsk, head boat wheeler for Oleg the Seer. And we also have Duke Quinn of Viborg, the director of the Academy of Science, also of Noblesse Oblige fame. And we also have Duke Emily of Novosibirsk, patron of the Hermitage Museum. Thank you all for your support. Thank you very much. And we're going to tell you about another Rexy pod that we like, and one of them that also supports us, called Ranking 76. Ranking 76 takes a look at the figures from the Wild West. So for me, it's great to learn about a place I have no clue aside from Texas. Um, And here they are with more info. I'm Eric. And I'm Matt. And together we are Ranking 76, so we are interrupting your normally scheduled podcast just to talk about... The Wild West. A cold, dangerous, merciless place. A place of lawlessness and violence. Join us on our adventure as we take you through the trials and sacrifices the settlers and Native Americans took to shape the... <coughs> Dear God, man, are you okay? That hurt my throat. I'm okay. Okay, well, while Matt's recovering, I'm just going to take an opportunity to tell you that we review and rank the heroes and villains of the American West and then divide them up on our own individual teams, and then at the end, we're going to face them off in each other to see who can build the best team in the West. And Matt, have you have you recovered? Join us! Okay, back to your regular show, everyone. I've really enjoyed listening to their podcast, and Matt and Eric are amazing people. I've met Eric in person and currently play D&D with Matt, and they're both amazingly hilarious and super interested in showing more history about the Wild West. Uh, The most czar power-like figure is probably John Wesley Hardin, but my personal favorites are probably Tecumseh and Chief Joseph. Check them out. Because, you know, we need some American history. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, I think there's one thing our listeners are deprived of. It's probably American history. Let's be real. Absolutely. Whether or not they're living it. (laughs) Because, yeah, I don't know. I think I just nearly lived through a major tornado. So I don't know. Yeah, we we had someone's door just get blasted off here. Like this, they they opened they opened their door. My neighbors. Yeah, like they, they opened their door. Like it's like a double door thing, but they opened the outside door and it just got blown off its hinges. So uh hmm. I was like, Wow, that's that sucks. Glad it's not me. <laughs> well, you know, a good neighbor would offer to help them fix it. I can't fix doors. <laughs> you can hold a screwdriver. Yeah, but I barely know the guys. 
Um, well, before now we're getting off track. And uh, what do you remember from Cieslav the Sorcerer's episode? You know what? I think this is one ruler who I could literally not forget. Quite literally, I I could not ever forget anything about this quite remarkable ruler. Um, I recall that I believe his father was a snake. Yes. Yeah. His father was a snake. He was born with a call on his head, which indicated he had some sort of magic power. Um, and he had a habit of turning into a wolf or a snake, I think, also. I definitely yeah. a wolf. A wolf, a snake, and a bird. And an elk. Yeah. Auroch, whatever they're called. Auroch. Yeah. Well, an elk and an auroch are very different animals, I have to tell. What is an auroch, anyways? <laughs> uh, an auroch is an extinct rela- relative of the cow. Or the buffalo or the bison. They basically look like gigantic uh, cows. Well then, I wish I knew that because I thought it was just a like a big elk. Well, they're long the extinct, but there is a guy who was trying to sort of breed them back into existence by basically breeding enormous bulls, just the biggest bulls they can possibly find. Interesting. Well, what else mm. do you remember? He was not a ruler for very long. He was only a ruler for a couple months before he was thrown out again. Uh, I, I get the feeling that the chroniclers did not like him all that much. No, no, they really did it. They were like, oh no, he got arrested and thrown in prison, even though his cousin said, we're mm. not going to arrest you after kissing the cross. And then they yeah. put him in prison anyways. And then after that, they're like, no, he's the worst. <laughs> He's a devil. Couldn't he just teleport out of prison? You know, he he teleports all the time, but never teleports himself out of prison. Yeah, maybe he was wise enough and like that he knew that they're going to make him the Grand Prince, which is why he didn't leave. He said to bide his time. You never know. Well, anyways, other you know, he was very uninteresting and we sent him to the Gulag. Yeah, it's just like he has such like an interesting character interesting figure in the literature uh the historical literature that is Mm -hmm. um and i say literature rather than history because you know this didn't happen (laughs) but in the literature he's just a quite a strange figure but in the end he was just still kind of boring yeah and 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 we get that and i'm just like i wish he wasn't because he has the best epithet so far yeah the sorcerer the spookiest epithet. We should have done a Halloween episode on him, but whatever. We did Baba Yaga. It's okay. Well, yeah, but oh, we could save. We could save him for the next Halloween episode. We read everything he's in, so everything's <laughs> out already. All right then. Well, I, let's move whatever. on. So, you know, usually this is when we cover the etymology of the name, but. We've covered Sviatoslav before, because he's number two, baby! Yep. Alrighty, are you ready to get into it? Mm-hmm. All right, Brendan, let's begin. Sviatoslav Yaroslavich was born in 1027 AD to Yaroslav the Wise and his beloved wife Ingigerd of Sweden. He was baptized as Nicholas, and once he was old enough, around 1040, Yaroslav gave him the territory of Vladimir to control. It was around this time that he married a woman named Kilikia and had a daughter named Vyshislava and four sons named Gleb, Alieg, 
David, and Roman. Um, for the sake of not repeating this later, because it's not that important, Vyshislava marries Duke Boleslav II or Duke Boleslav the Bold of Poland. And then a, a much later, he marries a woman named Oda of Stade around 1065, but we're not going to really mention this too much because it's not going to be very important. She gives him a fifth son whose name is Yaroslav, um, and he becomes a prince of Muram and Chertigov, but that's not important to the story. Around 1054, when Yaroslav the Wise passed from this world to the next, he gave the territory of Chernigov to Sviatoslav and asked him to listen to his older brother, Izyaslav, the now Grand Prince of Kiev. The three brothers formed the triumvirate and decided to share power together. However, we can see quite a discrepancy here, because Izyaslav, as we saw from previous episodes, was not the best of rulers. He was indecisive, he couldn't plan for the future, and was prone to fits of rage. On the other hand, um, our man today, Sviatoslav, was quoted as being brilliant on the battlefield, in politics, and always wanted to inspire culture in his realm, as we will see. So I'm setting, I'm setting him up for some good stuff right now, aren't I? Yeah, I can see. <laughs> well, you know, imperfect people are always more interesting. Well, imperfect men, you could say. That's another Rexypod, which we will rec uh, recommend at some other time. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, well, with Chernigov now in Sviatoslav's possession, he set to work. He started building up the city because it had not been given much attention since his uncle, Mstislav, who died in Yaroslav's episode during a hunting accident, quotation marks, uh, was in charge of the city. He organized the local government and introduced symbols of identification for his territory, which is something you'll see common with the Ruhr kids. They'll have like insignias for, you know, who they are. So like the one you see normally for like Ukraine, that typically tends to be like Vladimir or Yaroslav. Ah, okay. I think I know what the one you're talking about. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So they all have different ones for each other. And then these same symbols were used to mark his soldiers along, you know, with the banners that they hold up and everything of his territory mm -hmm. contained the symbol. And I'll send you the symbol once uh, we get to like pictures and all that. Mm -hmm. However, not even three years after the death of Yaroslav, Sviatoslav's younger brother, Vyakislav of Smolensk, passed away. The Yaroslavici took their brother's land and added it to the Kievan territory removing the chance of inheriting it from Vyakislav's young son. So basically, they took out a whole chain of people from being able to claim the Kievan throne. Um, then they did the exact same thing with the territory of Pskov, which was controlled by their uncle, Sudislav, who, if you remember, was locked up in prison by Yaroslav and then sent to a monastery by the Yaroslavici, which we did in Izyaslav's episode. And um, and then the territory of Pskov was added to the territories of Novgorod. So basically, they just combined two princedoms into one. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then uh, there's a, there's a very there's another very timely death also in Smolensk because another brother who wasn't part of the triumvirate, Igor, passed away. Mm -hmm. 
And Igor was not a Yaroslavici. He was a Yaroslavici, technically. He just wasn't in the club at the cool kids' table. He wasn't part of the three elder brothers. So they were like, nope, you are not in. And then he had a sudden case of death when he was visiting Smolensk as well. And lo and behold, all of his territory went to Kiev. And all of, all his sons were removed from inheritance from that territory. Wow. How strange. How very strange. And, he, and the fun thing is that all of these deaths occurred within a few years of the triumvirate acceding to the thrones of Kiev, Chernigov, and Pereyaslavl. So you, you, you see these three brothers are kind of making moves here. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you a map of the principalities of Kiev. Um, just because I need you, I want you to see where this is. So it'll be on Discord. Okay. But if you look at that, it'll show you like where everything is. So like what you see Novgorod as now, that is what they did after they added Pskov to the territory. And then Smolensk, uh, which is right below the gray in the middle, below Novgorod, which is in the north, was added to mm-hmm. Kiev. Then Polotsk, which is where Sviaslav is in the pink. Yeah. You know, that's his, that's independent like fully. Um, but you see Chernigov, Pereyaslavl, and Kiev are in like the south area of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Principality of Kiev. Did you say Polons? Polons? Pol- uh, Polotsk is for Siesta the oh, Sorcerer. There's, okay, I see. There's the city of Kiev and there's the Principality of Kiev. I see. Yes. Yes. And then you see Chernigov is pretty close to Kiev and Pereyaslavl yep. is pretty close to Kiev. So basically, they're within a few days ride from each other. So they're able to, mm-hmm. you know, plan and do everything accordingly as how they wish. And the whole reason I'm mentioning this is because in this episode, and as we've seen in other episodes, we have been dealing with the Izgoi, or these are, which is the Russian term for the princes who were the sons of the sons of the Grand Prince of Kiev, but they didn't get a chance to inherit or have claims due to the unfortunate event that their fathers passed away before the Grand Prince of Kiev died. You know who was their grandfathers. Mm-hmm. So essentially, their dads predeceased their grandpa, and that's why they can't inherit. Well, I see no potential for conflict. Absolutely not. <laughs> and um, you know, there's no potential for conflict here um, until we remember about this young man named Rostislav, because you see, Rostislav is the son of Vladimir Yaroslavich, who was the original heir to Kiev. Uh, to Yaroslav the Wise before he died from a sickness a few, like a year or two before Yaroslav the Wise died. Mm-hmm. How, however, we see something funky here because Yaroslav never gave Novgorod um, to anybody else after Vladimir died, which leads us to assume that Rostislav was meant to be the assumed heir to Novgorod. So he wanted to keep, to keep Novgorod in his son's family. Um, and he recognized that right of succession and he ruled the land until Rostislav would be able to reach an age where he could rule on his own. But of course, Yaroslav's death changed that. Right. And then, as we remember, Izislav took control and he placed a burgomeister or a posadnik, as we call it in Russian, to administer the town for Rostislav because Rostislav was still quite young at this point. He couldn't do it on his own. However, Rostislav kept finding himself with less and less and less power the longer the Posadnik was there ruling on his behalf. And then at one point, Izislav ousts Rostislav from the territory and puts his own son 
Mr. Slav in charge. Hmm. There's going to be a lot of names ending in Slav today. Yeah. Now that Rostislav had lost Novgorod, he was fearing for his life because he was a claimant to Novgorod and Izyaslav would be out to kill him. So what he did is he gathered a few of his loyal men and went down to Tumatorakan, which due to its distance from Kiev and the other big city centers in Kiev and Rus, was a great place for most of the Izgoi to flee to. Um, it's even rumored, as we mentioned last episode, that he was taken there in a single night with the help of Sieslav the Sorcerer. Ooh. Ooh. And um, with Rostislav going down south, it's around this time that some steppe tribes cross into Rus' territories. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Because this caused a distraction for the triumvirate. So, Izyaslav, Sviatoslav, and Sievolod made their way out with their armies to fight off the steppe tribes, which they dispatched rather easily. So, it was a pretty easy battle. Interesting. Because my understanding was that typically um, their style of fighting was a little more difficult to deal with because it was sort of hit-and-run tactics with horses and archery. Well, it's at this point where the, the steppe tribe that came in was actually running around away from the steppe tribe we are going to see coming up soon. You know, the Cumans. We've covered them twice already. Um, so mm-hmm. the, these steppe tribes were running away from the Cumans, which is why they were pretty easily dispatched because they were, they were already pretty weakened. Okay. Well, with this distraction of the steppe tribes for Sviatoslav, uh, Rostislav, his nephew, made his way down to Tumaturakhan officially with his actual army and used his uncle's not being nearby to his advantage. And um, he put an armed force against Tumaturakhan and seized the city from his cousin, Gleb Sviatoslavich. Gleb returned to Cherdigov, which is his dad's capital, with his tail tucked between his legs, and Rostislav started getting comfortable with ruling Tumaturakhan. Now, how do you think Sviatoslav would react to this? React to... His son being kicked out of the city by his nephew. For what? He's ousted from the city. So Gleb was taken out of the city he was mm-hmm. ruling by his cousin, Rostislav. Mm-hmm. And he's the eldest son to Sviatoslav. Yeah. How would Sviatoslav react to this? What do you think? Um, I think he would attack the city. Well, you're all right, because Gleb, of course, told his papa, Hey, papa, my cousin took my city away from him, from me. Can you can mm-hmm. you get it back for me? Dad! Oh, dad! Daddy! Cause, what's his cousin's name? Is it... Rostislav. Oh, oh, papa! Cousin Rostislav took away my lolly. Oh, I'm wearing a little sailor suit, and I took away my lolly. <laughs> You know, Sviatoslav, you know, grew in rage at this because this is his territory. Things should be peaceful because it's his area. And he gathered up his mm-hmm. troops and marched right to Tumatorakan. Rostislav peeked over the, the you know, the, the city walls and was like, oh, okay. Um, I know what we're going to do today, guys. And... Um, especially when he saw that this was a much larger force than what he could handle. Mm-hmm. So he did the one thing and only thing that he could do in this grave situation. Run away. He ran away. Bravely ran away. He did. He, <laughs> he had a strategic retreat. <laughs> uh, so Rostislav had uh-huh. a strategic retreat and withdrew from the city. 
Gleb was given back to Matorikon, um, and and Svetoslav stayed there relaxing for a few days, you know, enjoying the beachside, and then was like, all right, I'm done. I want to go home. And he left for the city, content with the fact that his son was back in power with no bloodshed. Not even a few weeks after Svetoslav's departure, Rostislav returned with his men and attacked Tumaturikon again. How do you think this went for him? Um, huh. You know what? That's a tough one, I have to say. Um, you're saying Rostislav. Rostislav. The Svetoslav? What? Rostislav. Rostislav, mm-hmm. okay. Rostislav. Um, who had just run away. He is now attacking Tumaturakon, which is being held by Gleb, and Sviatoslav is gone. Well, with Sviatoslav gone, I, I guess it would have gone better for for Rostislav. Yes, because he took the city back again. Mm-hmm. So, this caused Gleb to come back to Cherdigov once more, and he goes, Papa! Papa! Cousin Rostislav took my city again! <laughs> And uh, Sviatoslav ignored him this time. <laughs> wow, what a great dad. Well, the reason being... I, I wish it was in the room at the time. <laughs> well, the reason being is because Sviatoslav the Sorcerer, at the exact same time, like they coordinated this or something, was causing trouble up north in Novgorod. And, hmm. and this is when we mentioned last time that Sviatoslav took the city of Novgorod from um, Izyaslav's son, Mstislav. So Sviatoslav was a bit busy marching up north to help to help his brothers out with gaining probably one of the most profitable cities in Kievan Rus. Yeah, so do you want me to go over this for a third time or can I do the Sparknotes version? No, no. Sparknotes, please. Okay, because that's what I wrote. <laughs> I knew you would want the Sparknotes. Sviatoslav, of course, took the city of Novgorod, and along with his brothers, Sviatoslav marched north to capture him. Um, they fought a battle. Sviatoslav lost, um, but he disappeared in the cover of the night after the battle finished. Um, the Triumvirate, or the Yaroslavichi, said that they wanted a truce with Sviatoslav, and to prove their honesty, they kissed a cross. And Sviatoslav was like, Alrighty, I believe you guys. I'm a pious man. You're a pious man. I'll believe you. So he came with his two sons. He got arrested and shipped off to Kiev. And luckily, this is going to be the second to last time we will repeat this whole situation. Because hmm. we have one more ruler after this named Sviavolod. Well, and of course, as the Chroniclers love to mention, because they broke a promise that they made upon a cross, God then punished the Yaroslavichi by sending a stronger step tribe against them. The Cumans. Bum, bum, bum. Um, it's always interesting to me how um, Christian chroniclers are really good Christians in the West. Well, Westerners, really. I always identify these steppe tribes as being the scourge of God or the punishment from God. Because Attila the Hun was also called the scourge of God. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, it's always like it's it was outside invaders, barbarians that caused the downfall of the Roman Empire. Not like all the other problems it was always somebody on the outside's fault unless you're gibbon and you're like no it was christianity's fault (laughs) oh yeah true we can't forget the obvious answer oh yeah absolutely not like there was a christian roman empire for another thousand years huh Mm -hmm. well 
The Cumans strode in and began attacking the Rus, pillaging everything in their sight. Um, Sviatoslav and his brothers combined their forces to attack the menace, but they were ultimately repelled by the raiders. Izyaslav and Sviatoslav returned to Kiev to lick their wounds, but Sviatoslav returned to Chernigov, which was closer to the battle site. Um, it's around this time where we see um, the trouble brewing in Kiev, which we mentioned with Izyaslav and Sviatoslav. And we're going to mention it again with Sviatoslav because he was there. But we're going to deal with Sviatoslav because this is his episode, thankfully. Because... If you recall, Izyaslav didn't want to deal with the Cuban threat. He was like, nope, our men are gone. They're almost dead. We can't fight them. Sviatoslav, on the other hand, decided that he had to ensure that they did not harm his princedom and his territory. So he gave his men a few weeks to recuperate and gather as many as he could together. And he only had $3,000. He only had 3,000 soldiers left in his territory especially after the slaughter that he had faced against the Cumans. So his forces were depleted, but he still wanted to fight. So he took his men and marched towards the Snov River, which is east of Chernigov, and was where the Cumans were camping. Under the cover of the night, he sallied forth to meet them. And Sviatoslav himself was in the vanguard, ready to fight on the front lines and to fight alongside his men. The Cuban force numbered 12,000 compared to their 3,000, but... They didn't anticipate that Sviatoslav would attack them so suddenly because out of nowhere, the Kiev, the Chernigovin forces just stampeded through their camp, starting to slaughter as many as they could. And the Cumans were, as I said, were caught pretty unawares and they were unprepared for battle. And they tried to cross the river. Of course, the river curvet was pretty strong and many of the horses and the Cumans drowned while Sviatoslav captured the Cuman tribal leader and returned with him to Chernigov victorious. So he did what his brother wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And it's around this time where we see uh, Izyaslav being ousted from Kiev and Sviatoslav is now ruling the city. Just to give you a time reference as to when this happens. So things are pretty, things are looking up Sviatoslav right now. Uh, and News of the Cuban defeat spread through the territory because we see that with Sviatoslav's approval, Sviatoslav was able to send his son Gleb north to Novgorod and appoint him as the prince of Novgorod since the Novgorodians did not want uh, Sviatoslav controlling them and would only take a descendant of Yaroslav to be their prince. And thanks to Sviatoslav's victory over the Cumans, the Novgorodians decided that you know, he would be the best person to appoint a ruler for them than any of the other brothers because Izyaslav and Sviatoslav fled back to their city, to Kiev and did nothing while Sviatoslav actually went back and fought. What? What do they have against tactical retreats? Well, they decided to not do any fights afterwards and they were like, they're in our lands, they're killing us. Do something, anything, please. And Izyaslav was like... Not my problem. Yeah, that's literally Izyaslav's response. <laughs> Sviatoslav <laughs> was like, this is my problem because they're in my territory. <laughs> with the control of Novgorod under, you know, with Gleb, uh, Sviatoslav mm-hmm. is now technically the biggest landholder in Rus. Because if you see our little map here, uh, which I will post on our website, um, he now owns Chernigov and Novgorod. Well, Izyaslav just owns, okay. or te- technically, well, Sviatoslav at the time 
only owns Kiev and Polotsk. So, mm-hmm. so he's, you know, he owns a lot of territory right now. And technically, due to his positioning in Chernigov, he has a pretty good access to the river, to the, uh, to the Black Sea, which would help him control trade a lot more. Yeah. So this is, this is a fun point because he now controls the northern part of the incoming trade from the Baltic Sea and can controls a pretty good part of the trade coming up from the Black Sea. So it's, it's, it's nice. Yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. However, we see another threat coming from the West because Izyaslav, who was recently ousted from power by his own citizens, mind you, returned with a Polish army at his side and was marching on Kiev to fight against Sieslav. When in doubt, go to Poland, get yourself an army, come back. It worked for Sviatopolk, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, there, a lot of people have fled to Poland at this rate. Yeah. It seems. Yeah, literally a few Sviatopolk and then Izyaslav. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. news reached via messenger from Kiev to Sviatoslav that Sieslav had used the chaos to teleport himself home and leaving the city to be punished by Izyaslav because Izyaslav was hella hella pissed. Um, Why? Because they took him out. What is he going to do to the people who live there? Kill them. Okay. (laughs) You know, that's the same justification Osama bin Laden used for 9-11. I just want to point that out. (laughs) Well, that was literally Izyaslav's thinking. He was not a very smart person. So yeah, I can understand why someone would think that. Yeah. So Sviatoslav decided to respond to the messenger. And with this message saying, we shall communicate with our brother. If he marches upon you with the poles to destroy you, we shall fight against him and not allow him to destroy our father's city. If his intentions are peaceful, then he shall approach with a small troop. End quote. So basically he was reassuring the Kievans that, hey, if he attacks you, we're going to attack him. We've got your back. So he's ingratiating himself to the Kievans at a pretty early point. These messengers returned to Kiev and gave them the news. And then Izyaslav heard new, um, from his a letter from his actual brother saying, hey, if you attack our dad city, we're going to attack you because you're being a jerk. So, and then Svyavolod, you know, was kind of, well, he was kind of a follower. So he would just kind of do whatever Izyaslav or Svyatoslav told him. At this point, Svyatoslav was closer. So he was going to listen to Svyatoslav. And with both of his brothers against him, Izyaslav knew that he couldn't deal in a war especially with just a Polish troop that was borrowed. Because guess what the Duke of Poland didn't want to do? Fight against his father-in-law. Yeah, yeah, understandable. And then the rest of the message also made Izyaslav aware that Kiev was offering no real position and that he should not attack the people. As we covered in Izyaslav's episode, we know he sent his son in to punish the leaders of the uprising. So he still did some damage, but not to the city directly. So there was no siege, there was no assaulting the walls or anything. It was just, all right, just kill the people who started this whole mess and were, were golden. Sounds like a good plan. It is. And I, you know, you, we have Sviatoslav to thank for calming his brother down. Ah, the diplomat. So with Izyaslav now back in control of Kiev, things became rather quiet for the brothers. I mean, there was a few things here and there that happened, but for Sviatoslav, he ruled from Chernigov rather peacefully until Sieslav attempted to attack Novgorod to take it from 
his son, Gleb. Gleb's track record is having lost to City twice. Um, so how do you think he did the third time? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he lost again. Actually, no, wait. Third time's a charm. Why not? And that is exactly what Gleb probably thought. Third time's a charm. And he actually repelled Sieslav back, keeping control hey, over Novgorod. Right. Great job, Gleb. You're doing great. Wow. You've really grown. You've really grown. And, you know, we're all so proud of you. Very much. Now, you want to hear the the kind of the smarmy part here? If I'm using the What's word that word correctly. Um, it's hinted in the Chronicles that it was, at this point... Vizioslav the Sorcerer helped? Well, no, no, no. That Vizioslav C- the Sorcerer was the one attacking Novgorod. But he may have been doing it under Izioslav's orders. Whoa. Because Izioslav at this time controlled Polotsk. And if he told, he may have told Vizioslav, hey, if you take Novgorod from my nephew, I'll give you Polotsk back. And, and, I get, and, I, and I get Novgorod and then we can be in peace. But of course, this didn't happen. So that we don't know if that's official, but that's very much hinted in the Chronicles because I did get a new book that gives me more information about this stuff, and I'm very happy with it. Nice. Yes. Well, with Gleb now in Novgorod, Sviatoslav removed the Rostislav from Timoturakan, so his nephew's now gone, and he placed his son, Roman, in charge of the city. And then just to kind of show how peaceful things are and, you know, Sviatoslav's battle prowess, uh, we see new tribes of Cumans making their way through Sviatoslav's land, but every time... Svetoslav goes to fight them. They avoid all of his territories and cities and do not. They raid everybody else, but they go into Svetoslav's area and they're like, nope, do not touch this man. He is fearsome. Hmm. Uh, So it's probably, you know, they're probably afraid of his, you know, killing them all or because they may have had some treaties in place after they captured one of the tribal leaders. But because they are a tribe, you know, you you make a treaty with one tribe, you're not making treaties with all the tribes, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't Rome or, you know, or America where it's like, oh, you guys are all the same people. No, no, there's different tribes. So it's a, but word spread around and they're like, do not mess with Sviatoslav. So things are pretty quiet. And uh, around 1072, this is, we're going to mention this again. We've done it before. Um, so the triumvirate decided to show their brotherly love, and together they moved the relics of St. Boris and Gleb to the church in Vishkorod after they were able to have built a new one for them. On May 2nd, my birthday, not the year though, um, the Yaroslavici came down to Vishkorod by placing the wooden coffin of Boris on their shoulders and following the clergy in procession. When they placed the coffin to its final resting place, they opened the casket and they exhumed the sweet fragrance. Mm-hmm. Because Boris was such a holy man. Absolutely. And then they brought Gleb's coffin in on a sled because, you know, Gleb was buried already in a stone coffin. So this is Boris and Gleb, not Gleb Svetoslavich. So, but when they got to the entrance of the church, the coffin wouldn't move anymore. Like the sled wouldn't budge. Nothing would would work. Um, hmm. Until everyone exclaimed, Kyrie eleison, God have mercy. Oh, I thought you were about to say, well, just put some sawdust under the sled. That usually gets me out of sticky situations. Well, actually, 
the opposite of sticky situations, literally slidey situation, slippery situations. Always bring kitty litter with you whenever you're driving in the winter. Well, once inside with both relics of the saints there, the Metropolitan came in and took out St. Gleb's hand and touched the sores on Svetoslav's body. Svetoslav exclaimed with relief at his pain being relieved and his st- because he had begun to become afflicted with several sores around his body. With this translation of relics over, the princes and their boyars had a great feast. So, it's a Russian party. And they decided, you know, hey, hey, bros, you know, we're all together. Why don't we update some of dad's laws, you know, make some changes, you know, for the better. And they were like, all right, you know, here's the Ruskaya Pravda or the Russian law codes. And they're like, you know, they agreed on one law. Just one. Can you guess what the law was? Honestly, I, I don't know. I'm not going to try on this one. No, that's okay. Because, um, so the law that they added was prohibiting people from avenging a murder with another murder. Hmm. I think Albania could use that right now. Well, they didn't, you know, they prohibited avenging murder with another murder. And instead, you had to pay a fee to the person who died or to the living family. They brought back the Wergild. Yeah. Yeah. The Wergild, the blood money. That's, that's a very old practice in um, Norse society. They brought it back. After their grandpa took it away, they brought it back. Huh. Yeah. It's like the war on drugs. It's like the if you outlaw something, you're just going to make everything worse. Well, a year passed and Svetoslav found, found himself with more and more sores. And he was beginning to cough a bit here and there. He called up his brother Svevolod the prince of Periaslavl, and in secret claimed to his brother, hey, I think Izislav and Svetoslav had made amends and formed the pack, and they might be trying to take away our lands to give it to Izislav. For, you know, so Svetoslav can be independent again. And according to the chroniclers, Svetoslav may have been lying to his brother. Hmm, interesting. Because if anything was true... It may be that Izislav and Svetoslav may have actually been working together to take out the largest landowner in the region. Who's that largest landowner in the region right now, Brendan? The largest landowner in the region? Um, Sviatoslav. It is Sviatoslav. And why would the Grand Prince want to remove his biggest landowner? Because uh, he wants his land. <laughs> exactly. He wanted Novgorod back. That was the main reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, another, a few reasons that Sviatoslav may have was, you know, Isislav was just a really poor military leader and he really couldn't fight his battles himself. You know, he always had to get Sviatoslav to assist him every time. Um, it was Sviatoslav who always led their forces to victory and the Kievans were still kind of annoyed of Isislav. They didn't welcome him back with open arms. And it was highly likely that the Kievans may have come up to Sviatoslav before and been like, hey, Prince, can you can you like take out this guy? Because he's really bad. Why do why do we keep him? And he always runs away from stuff. Like, please. Sviatoslav and Svevolod approached Izislav in Kiev and essentially said, Hey, we're we're allying together. Get off the throne right now, or we're gonna make you get off the throne. And it's at this point that Sviatoslav sat down on the throne and became the Grand Prince of Kiev. After Izislav ran with his tail between his legs back to Poland after taking a bunch of treasure with him. So Svetoslav is now the Grand Prince after a very bloodless coup. I like this guy. He's, you know. Yeah, I think he's quite cool. Now, 
here's here's some other thing. The Kievans may have sent a prominent boyar named Jan Vishatic, um, who at this point was known for his wisdom and piety and was a very well-liked boyar. So he was representing most of the nobles in Kiev. And we we think that he may have been the person who said to Sviatoslav, hey, be the Grand Prince, because he was made a lieutenant in Rostov, which is way up in um, the northeast, because he was making everyone aware that, hey, Izislav's rule was a huge issue for everybody. And Izislav's just a really shady guy because he was talking to the abbot of the Monastery of the Caves about how Izislav was kind of trying to attempt to remove the lands of all his brothers. So like he was talking to the, Izislav was talking to the clergy about, hey, I want to take these people's land. How do I do it best and legally and, you know, under God's purview? So, and the Kievans heard about this and was like, wait, no, Sviatoslav's a good guy. He saved us from the Cumans. He made sure that you didn't kill us all. Like, why are you trying to screw him over? It was pretty much worthwhile for Sviatoslav to be the prince at this point, because if his brother's good for nothing, why would he not be the one in charge, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm following. Yeah. Um, And then the best part about this is because Sviatoslav is now the grand prince. What happens with his sons? What do they get out of all of this? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. What is the one thing that... Uh, land. We mentioned before. No, 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 not land. What is the one thing we mentioned before about sons... Inheritance. Inheritance. What, yeah. So land. Yeah, but what land does his eldest son have a right to get now? So Sviatoslav has Kiev. He has Novgorod. Excuse me. He has Novgorod. Right? Yes. So his sons will have Novgorod. And Kiev. Yes, they now have a claim. All of his sons now have a claim to Kiev. Yeah, actually, uh, let me remedy that quickly. His sons have a claim to split up Kiev and then fight over it for the rest of their lives. Yes, that's even better. <laughs> um, well, as the Grand Prince of Kiev, he decided to embark on quite a few projects. He had a lot of money from mm-hmm. controlling most of the trade in Rus because he owned most of the of the river. The river paths. So uh, he was able to build a new church to the Mother of God in Kiev, and he patronized a collection of religious works so that so that they could be made available in one place. So instead of having a bunch of like excellent works all over, he was like, "Nope, let's put a collection out of all of these in one place, so we can so we can read them in one place." And you know, I do want to remind everyone that hey, books were handwritten at this time, so this was. This would be a huge amount of manpower to collect all the documents and put them into one book, especially if you're going to make copies of them. So, well, that's what monks are for. Exactly. So he had the monks do this for him, but he, he basically said, Hey, do this. We can have it on one place because he'd like the learning a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Sviatoslav found out that, Hey, Isislav was going to Poland to get more support because the Duke of Poland is his brother-in-law. So he decided, hey, let me send a message to my son-in-law, who I have more purview as a father over, and ask Duke Bolesław II of Poland to expel Izislav and not give him any aid, but also to figure out a way to take all his money away from him, which he did. So basically, Duke Bolesław II, as we mentioned in Izislav's episode, promised Izislav hey, yeah, I'll help you give me payment. And then he never helped him and never gave him back his money. And then a messenger from the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV, 
who at this time was just king of Germany, arrived to Kiev and was wondering, you know, what's going on with Izislav? Why is he saying that he's the Grand Prince and wants an army to help, you know, help him and everything? And, you know, Sviatoslav was like, hey, let me give you the, let me give you the right deets here. I'm the Grand Prince. Izislav's just a sore loser who lost his throne twice. So, like, he doesn't need to have it. And um, look at all this money that I can just give to you and to your and to your king. Take this and just ignore Izislav. So he, he basically let the messenger go back with a bunch of money and gifts and after showcasing how wealthy he was. And so at this point, Izislav was not given any aid by the Poles or the Germans and was kind of losing a lot of money. And he goes down to the Pope. It was, however, around this time that Sviatoslav decided to do a bit of bloodletting. And he took a knife and cut open one of his sores to help relieve his pain. After a few days, the sore turned blacker and blacker, and his body mm-hmm. reached an intense temperature. <sighs> this is a medieval medicine moment. And then the following morning, he was as cold as ice in his bed. Sviatoslav's reign was a rather peaceful one. Really? You call that peaceful? You call that peaceful? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he didn't go to war during his reign. Come on. Yes, he did. He attacked no, he the, the city on behalf of his son um, because his cousin took it away from him. But uh, no, not as not as the grand duke, not as the grand prince of Kiev. That still counts. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, well, he took the throne of Kiev in a bloodless coup because now uh-huh. his sons were claimants to the Kievan throne, and this is where yes. the mess will begin. <laughs> uh, how was that for you, Brendan? Another anticlimactic ending. Although, I have to say, not dying in battle is an accomplishment. Yeah. I wouldn't call it dying of old age. Well, how old was he at this time? Um, if So he died in 1076, and he was born in 1027. Okay, so he was in his late 40s. I'm not doing yeah. the math right now. It's, t- it's I'm tired. It's late. You know what? I'm going to do the math really quick. So 1076 minus 1027. Just, he was 49. Just subtract... 76 from yeah 49 all right you know what that's not bad that's not bad all right are you ready to rate them yeah all right let's go all right let me pull up this thread oh no oh no what? i closed i closed everything ah okay let me, let me pull up the i closed this the list and everything let me pull it up really quick luckily we to the power of editing we can do this all righty Special operations. How well did they do in battle, lead in battle, or have others lead in battle for them? Basically military prowess. So his military campaigns consisted of the one time that he came to the aid of his son after his son was thrown out of, uh, what was it? Was it Novgorod? Tumaturakan. Yeah, Timitur, that's right. So his son was thrown out of Timitarikon by his cousin, a.k.a. Um, Sviatoslav's nephew. And simply showing up was enough for him to turn tail and run. So I, I, that's, a, that's a point for him, I think. He fought the Cumans. I know that. And it appears he won, right? After the second time. So they, he lost against the Cumans the first time, but that may have been because Izislav was in charge of that army. Okay, fair enough. Um, what other military camp actions or campaigns am I missing here? Uh, he fought against Sviatoslav a few times and won all of those. 
he he beat the Cubans, as we mentioned. After he when he led the fight, he beat the Cubans. Then he pretty much he won every battle that he was in, either through people being terrified of him, mm-hmm. or just or just like outright losing. But he he won almost all of his campaigns, save for the one. Okay, yeah, yeah. So. Basically, 90% of the time he won. Yeah, and like, the really cool thing is is that he went to fight against the force that beat him with a much smaller force and then kicked their asses. Yeah, so, you know what? Uh, I'm like feeling... Um, I feel like nothing, nothing is standing out to me as remarkable that would cause me to give him a 9 or a 10. So, like... I'll I'll give him like it concert I'll I'll be conservative and I'll give him a seven. Yeah, I was thinking about giving him a six, just because like mm-hmm. I did like everything that he's done, but he also didn't really expand the realm. He just kind of protected yeah. it, um, which is mm-hmm. why he's losing points from me. But otherwise, he did a pretty good job, um, and just protecting. So like, pretty good. So six and seven. Yeah, I was about to give him an eight, actually. So, if you're giving you're him a eight? six, yeah, I'll just give him no, because then we just have to like, it would have whatever. So, no, I'm going with a seven. Okay, so that's a total of thirteen for Spetsalna Operatia. Uspiech. Success. How successful were they in running their nation? What cultural significance did they leave behind? So the first thing that comes to mind for me um, was the fact that. He again was another. He was another book guy. He liked learning, and he compiled a bunch of documents into one copy. Uh, ooh, this is very nice. I said I just sent Brendan a picture of a page of the book. Yeah, this is very beautiful. The illustrations here are very beautiful. So, yeah, as you can imagine, we're both nerds. We're both book guys. These. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like illustrations of flowers, birds, lions, and, and just like the golden color of the parchment is really, yeah, very nice. And the, the um, sort of quilt-like mandala-like uh, um, part up at the top here. Um, what documents was he gathering here exactly? Uh, just a bunch of religious documents. Okay, so the Bible, commentaries. Yeah, stuff like that. Okay, and it's called the Isboric? Isbornic, yeah. Isbornic. It's just collection. It just it just means collection in Russian? Yep. Is it Isbornic Adena? Uh, Isbornic 1073, because that's when it was made. So, like, as soon as he okay. got to the... um, As soon as he got to the throne, he just started building. He just ordered this done. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and it just has, like, a bunch of, like, theological compendiums, you know, excerpts of the works of the Church of the Father, or chronology, a survey of poetic figures and tropes, articles on grammar, logic, philosophy, parables, riddles, and a first list of books forbidden in Ukraine. Ah, interesting. Yeah, um, I'm looking at the... I just googled it, and the first thing that came up was something from the Internet Encyclopedia of Ukraine. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll read that later. I like that. That's cool. I like... I like tomes. I'm a tome guy. Um, so, so I have to give him credit for that because um, we're counting cultural success here. 
um, or cultural longevity. Ultimately, he died of old age. He did not die in battle. That I consider that quite a success. He got his sons to be claimants to the throne, despite him not being the eldest son. Even and even, mm-hmm. even though Isislav came back, he can now say according to the rules of his father, or they can say according to the rules of Grandpapa. You know, we can now inherit the throne because Papa was a grand prince for three years. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. So overall, I'm feeling like feeling pretty good about this one. Um, uh, I want to give him an eight, eight, I think. Um, yeah, I'm going to give him more like a, I'm going to be very uh, different from you here. I'm going to give him a four. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't think he had like, I love the fact that he had this cultural stuff, but he didn't really have anything of value. And like, for me, it's like three points for the book. Um, and then one point for essentially getting his sons to be claimants. But other than that, he really didn't hmm. actually boost it up to a five because he did do stuff for Cherdigov when he got into the throne too. So, okay. That's a good point. Um, I think I'll, I'll put it at like a six and a half now that you've said that. Okay. So that is uh are you good? Are you good for your number then? Yeah. Six and a half. I won't do any more subdivisions. <laughs> yeah, that is an eleven point five for Uspiech. Already, compromat. Blackmail. What things did they do behind closed doors or outwardly that may have made other people not like them? So this one, um, the one thing I can think of is kind of telling his son after he got kicked out of. Um, Tuta, Tutaminic, Tutaminin, Timaturakon, Timaturakon. So after his son got booted from Timaturakon again, the second time, okay, granted, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. At this point, it's kind of your fault for losing the city again. But his son then got Novgorod. Yeah, well, then his son got Novgorod, that's true. Um, and he did it. I'm keeping it. Maybe Novgorod just has better defenses. Probably just has better defenses. So in terms of, yeah, the only thing I can think of is not really all that much, honestly. Like, uh, I'm just, I don't know. I, I feel like just giving him a zero, honestly. Okay. I, I have some stuff here to tell you. Okay. Okay. So just remember, he did promise on the cross to not arrest Sieslav. And he did it. Me, 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 me. <laughs> um, Don't care. Do not care. <laughs> he usurped Izyaslav okay. from the throne. Okay. So, Again. Who cares? Even though his dad said, follow your elder brother's advice, even though his elder brother was an idiot, he still did it. All right. Well, yeah, exactly. His elder brother's an idiot. But he stopped listening to him and took his throne. Yeah, no, still zero for me. Um, he did use his connections to basically like throne block Izyaslav in Western Europe. <laughs> I thought that was a bit, that was kind of funny in Western Europe. Yeah, because he his um his what brother country? went Poland and Germany. Okay, so Central Europe, but it's Western to. It's west of Russia. Is the point? Uh, yeah. Um. 
Okay, that would bump me up to a one. Probably. And then here's a, here's another one. Um, then I remember reading the Chronicles that when he usurped Isislav's throne, the priests and monks from the local monasteries came up to him and was like, no, you need to give the throne back to your brother. This is, you need to be follow, you know, filial love. And he was basically like, okay, here's a bunch of money. Now leave me the F alone. That's just good politics. It's called diplomacy. Yes, but I thought it was kind it of funny. It takes two to like, tango, and the monks also accepted the money. Yeah. But I, I thought it was kind of funny, because I'm going to give him a two. <laughs> yeah, I'm giving him a one. Okay. So that is a three for compromat. <laughs> okay. Okay. Boja moi. Oh my god. Basically, how good looking were they? Um. So... Here's a picture that he had made himself in the Isbornik. Okay, so this is how he wants to depict himself. Is he in the middle there? He is in the he is in the right, the right most right hand side of holding the book. I'm gonna be straight up. He looks like a dead, bloated pig. <laughs> um, and this is where I'm going to be very sad to note that hey, um, this is the only real picture we have of him that is like contemporary. Um, But I do want to talk, you know, those are his four sons in the background. That is Oda Uh Stade, his new wife. And then that's his young son, Yaroslav in the bottom. So we have a family picture. I understand. Yeah. Okay. Here's the thing. So I understand like that. Not every medieval painting is accurate. um, But if this is all we have, what I don't even know what is going on with whoever whoever drew this. It's like, okay, just looking at their faces. Um his wife there, I'm assuming one of her eyes is like halfway up her forehead. Uh they have none of them have pupils, barely any pupils. Um yeah, he looks like he looks like a bloated corpse. He's got fat cheeks. I suppose it's supposed to be his beard. Uh, all right. What else do we have here? Um, yeah, no, he looks like a bloody corpse, and his sons look like they're about to starve to death. <laughs> well, here's another picture we have from the Redsville Chronicles. Um, he's the figure in the all middle, right. and this is his, this is him showing his blank okay. to the German yeah. messengers. Okay, so this is way better. Okay, so the artist clearly is way more competent here because he understands the beauty of simplicity the, this they drew his face here and it's literally just you know d- d- zero almost no detail here doesn't even have a beard okay okay so this is the first picture i showed you is from the isbornic which is how he chose to rep- have himself represented at the time and this is from the radsville chronicles which came out over 400 years after he died okay here's the thing Aesthetically, I am not all that opposed to um, the Isboric. I think overall, it's a very beautifully illuminated book. However, if we're judging a person's appearance based on if, again, he, I'm, I, I cannot emphasize enough. You'll see when the audience will will the audience will vindicate me when <laughs> they my take on this when they see the picture on the website. So I will give him. I will give him one point out of pity because 
the artist he hired was clearly incompetent. I'm going to give him three points. Okay. Because, mostly because this is, he had a picture of him and his family commissioned. Even though it's not the best picture, it is pretty ugly to look at. I will admit that. But the fact that he decided to have a picture of himself, his wife, and his son's commission, for me, is just amazing. Because it does show that he cared about his family. Family, man. I suppose. Except when you're busy. His daughter's not there because she's married already. Or else Mm. she would be in the picture. So she's not considered part of his family, technically. Yeah, because she's off of Poland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, She's useful for Polish connections, but that's about it. So, um, are you good with your one, then? Yeah, I'm sticking with one. Okay. I'm sticking with a three, so that is a four for Boja Moy. Okay. Vladichistva. Sovereignty. How long did they last on the throne? Well, I know when he was born. Um, 1027? Yeah. And he yep. died in 1054. So he died at the no. age of 49. 1056. 1054 was... Yaroslav, 1076. I don't care. 10, 1076, <laughs> okay. So yeah, he died at the age of 49. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I know how long he lasted still sucking air. But on the throne, um, I'm, I'm, I want to say he... Uh, uh, specifically on the throne as a prince of Kiev. Yes. As a prince of Kiev, or Kiev, um... 15 years. No, I actually said it earlier. He was Prince of Kiev for three years. Oh, because... oh, okay, you did. Yeah. I didn't notice. Yeah, it's okay. Sviatoslav II reigned from March 22nd, 1073 to December 27th, 1076 for a period of 3.75 years or a total of 1.49 points. But, you know, he's been ruling technically territory mm-hmm. since 1040 yeah so he's been in power of some kind for way longer than that yes it's just he decided to cut open his sore and infect it and die Alrighty, i guess this begs the question brendan do you think Sviatoslav is fearsome enough do you think he's um worthy of being sent off to the gulag or to party it out in the kremlin I'm not going to lie, this was not one of the more entertaining czars, but I just kind of have a strange affection for him. I don't know what it is. Um, I mean, he was a family man. He helped out his sons. He eventually helped one of his sons become a prince of Novgorod. Um, and, you know, he didn't have all that much kompromat. I don't know what it is. He just seems like a good guy. I I want to reward his. Yeah, oh yeah, and he made the um, Izbornik. Um, yeah. So I I kind of feel like he deserves Kremlin. I I literally I was researching this and I'm like, I think he deserves a Kremlin because like, honestly, for me, the fact that he actually has, you know, did all of these things and the only reason why anything ever sucked was because of his brother Izyaslav. So, the fact that he was able to at least, you know, get his sons to claim on the throne, even though he was going to die, 
and just for me, it just kind of showed that, you know, he tried to get his family in a better position than it was because if Isislav's family was let to rule, things would just be worse and worse for them as now like cadet branches. Um, yeah, so I'm glad he got it. So Sviatoslav two, congrats. You did what your predecessor Sviatoslav one couldn't do and go to the Kremlin. Woo! Yeah. Woo! Um, oh yeah, and he has a total of thirty-two point ninety-nine points, which puts him overall, as of right now, in drumroll, please, ninth place out of twelve. That's quite modest. Yeah, but like mm-hmm. I, the issue, the issue with him is that you know we didn't give him a lot. Of, um, he didn't get a lot on Compromat. Yeah, he lost out on Bojemoy and Compromat, and like. The fact that we give, you know, 20 points to Vladichislav, which is something he can't control, you know, doesn't help him out at all. Because, you know, Izislav Izislav got more points than he did. Well, not anymore. Yeah. But he could control Vladichislav. Except he decided to cut open his... uh, Yeah. He cut open the sword and infected Uh, himself. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that that is his fault. Yeah, but he is behind Izislav the first, and above Igor. <laughs> so he's not as he's not worse than Igor. Well, I know that's right. Yeah, I know that's right. Actually, the new standard currently is: is he worse than Sviatoslav? Because Sviatoslav is worse than Igor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, congrats. Well, congrats. Um. And this is now where we regret to inform you that. An executive decision has been made, and we are cutting poetry from the episodes because I can't go through Pushkin all the time. So, Brendan, are you ready with some recommendations uh, today? Yes, actually, um, I was trying to come up with one for today, and I stumbled one on one the other day. Um, I'm going to recommend a musician by the name of Dolores Catarino or Catarino. You can find her on Spotify. She only has 91 monthly listeners on Spotify, but I stumbled on her on YouTube. I stumbled on her uh, TED Talk where she discusses her musicianship. Um, She practices what she calls or composes what she calls polychromatic music. Poly meaning many, chroma meaning color, of course. And what she was referring to is she is working with microtonal music. So in the 12 tone Western scale, I mean, you've shown, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And in between some of those, there's A sharp slash B flat, and there's C sharp slash D flat, and on and on and on. Well, technically, these are just, uh, these are just representing particular frequencies of sound. You could also do something in between uh, C-sharp and D. That would be C-sharp and a half. Or between C and C-sharp would be C-half-sharp. And 
this is really interesting because I have been aware of the existence of microtonal music for a very long time, and I have yet to encounter too many musicians who I feel actually do it all that well. Like um, the psych rock band King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard uses microtonal um, guitars a lot, and Flying Microtonal Banana, one of their first microtone albums is one of my favorite albums of all time but in all fairness like well there one song um rattlesnake it's microtonal yeah but it has a bass line that's constantly strumming on the same note and that really helps keep things grounded what um katarina dolores katarino does here is she has this instrument that's just covered with buttons and each of these buttons represents like if like there's like c half sharp c to c sharp she's like getting a bunch of the notes in between c and c half sharp as well and she makes the synthesizer music with these really warm rich relaxing tones with all these just wonderful overtones because of the um, wave wave tables or wave shapes that she's using. And I don't know what she's doing, but like the chords she makes are just really beautiful and they just wash over you. It's some of the most, basically the first microtonal music that I would describe as being beautiful and relaxing rather than very harsh and energetic. Yeah. Dolores, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-O, Dolores Caterino. Find her on Spotify, YouTube. You can also watch her TED Talk. Awesome. I will check it out. And we'll put this in the episode description below mm -hmm. or on the next slide over. I don't know how your podcast catcher works. Um, <laughs> so my recommendation is something that I ate that I've been missing forever since I moved up to the north. And that recommendation Scrapple. is, no, I love Scrapple, but like, I get it here all the time. <laughs> no, my recommendation <laughs> is eating Waffle House. I've never been to Waffle House. So the thing about Waffle House is it's not, you know, the best food and it's not like the most healthy food, but it's consistent food it's no waffles. matter where you go. It's not waffles. It's everything. Um, mm -hmm. But it is consistent food. Well, it's breakfast 24-7. Yeah, it's breakfast 24-7. and stop it's, interrupting. Um, and it's something that you can keep, you know, you, you can go any to any Waffle House around the U.S. in the South and you still get the exact same thing that you love at the same quality. And I realized, you know, after I went down to Virginia and Maryland for work and I got Waffle House again and I'm like, wow, this wasn't a long drive, but like I still miss eating this stuff because it was for me, it's something that I always had after concerts you know, when I needed to get my voice back or just have like something to eat once we get back from a concert at 11 p.m. And for me, my go-to is always sausage, egg, and cheese grits. You know, eggs are starting to side up, mash them together, put in some sausage. And something I've discovered to do here when I make grits is replace the sausage with scrapple and it's just as good. But it is, for me, it is a great place to kind of know that, hey, you're, it's going to feel like you're eating at home and it's still pretty cheap. So yeah, and it's going to be open no matter what. So because you know if Waffle House closes, you know things are going to be bad out there. So I would highly recommend just, you know, going to Waffle House and 
eating some Waffle House and getting some grits there if you like grits. And if you don't know what grits are, I'm just going to tell you, they're delicious. That's all you need to know. It's cornmeal. I was always told that Waffle House is where you go when it's 3 a.m. and you're still drunk. You're like, it's not waking up. Actually, no, it's great hangover food. It is great hangover food, which is also what I've used it for before in Texas. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So Waffle House is my recommendation. So, Brendan, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Foster underscore writing. As of this episode is recording, um, for reasons I will not go into, I'm going to go private for a couple of weeks. But if I look at your (laughs) if I look at your account and you seem cool, I'll let you follow me. Um, I'm also starting a Substack blog where I write about um, philosophy, literature, art, music, politics, and the intersection of all of those things. It's called Invented Organs. So just go to inventedorgans.substack.com. And I have two posts up at the moment. The first one has to do with the relationship between Renaissance demonology and the work of demonology scholar Armando Maggi and uh, noise music as in the works of artists such as Mersbo. Oh, and I also have another one that came out yesterday, which was Friday, March 31st, um, um, analyzing the whale as a work of body horror and while acknowledging that it does not it really reinforces stereotypes about fat people being disgusting. It nevertheless, as a work of body horror, if it is a work of body horror, which knowing Aronofsky, I think it is, um, there's a potential for a politics of emancipation, emancipation to be drawn out from it. And all of that will also be available under our publications tab on our website. Cause I'll just be linking his Brendan's articles to that section. So you can get to that. You can go on our website pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm, the, the everything's going to be free. I'm never going to put out a like a subscriber only post. I don't believe in that. So I can't say I can't say that I do. I <laughs> I also believe in that because we have a Patreon for a reason. But <laughs> uh, but if you notice, I. Uh, I just have a coffee and you can you can subscribe for you can subscribe for a cent a week if you want. I don't care. Well, if you want to get more direct contact with the podcast itself or just me, um, you can feel free to access our website at czarpower.com. Because thanks to listener Zach, we got a whole domain name. <laughs> Thank you, nice. Zach. It's professional now. It looks so nice. Um um, there you can find the show notes, pictures, bibliography, and you can vote on whether you think Sviatoslav II deserved the Kremlin or the Gulag. And then you can also let Brendan know as to why Sviatoslav I deserves the Kremlin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got some complaints about that one. But whatever, we can hash that one out in the future on a future episode, in a Patreon episode. No, the the plan is if we have a coin flip, we will have the fans decide on whether they can continue on to see who out of everyone who's in a coin flip. I'm not saying it has to change the official ranking. I just want to, I think it'd be a fun exercise to see if you or Ben could persuade me why I'm wrong. Okay. Uh, We can get Ben on for that. (laughs) Um, Well, you can, you can find us on all of our social media as Zarp at Zarp power pod. 
and Tsar is spelled T-S-A-R. Now, if you would like to be like our wonderful dukes, princes, uh, counts, you could also support the show by subscribing to our Patreon and get access to bonus episodes for both Tsar Power and the History of Starcraft Battle Georgia. We promise we will put an episode there at some point. It's just that my book on Slavic gods got delayed and it said it was going to arrive at some point in March and it's still not here. But we also have an Amazon book wish list, a PayPal, and a coffee. And if you'd like to do something that's free, leave a review on your favorite podcast host or on Apple or on Spotify. Uh, we'd like reading your reviews, especially if they're five-star and great reviews. If they're a one-star, keep your nasty comments to yourself. We don't need them. <laughs> um, you, you can just email us what you think would be nice and want us to change. But don't need to post negativity anywhere. And that's a dosignantovarishi from me. And remember, Vlush Prusdet Parazitov. Goodbye. See ya.